we're actually at one of those places in the Bible where it's easy for Christians to get excited to amass their end times charts and their newspapers and their Bible prophecy books and launch into speculation and often heated debate sometimes with other Christians as to how close we are to the end of the world, the role of Israel and all of it, whether or not Obama is the Antichrist, all sorts of things of that nature. And while the end times get a lot of treatment in the Bible, and therefore we should consider end time doctrines to be important, Paul, he's, he's not writing to the Thessalonians in the passage this morning that we'll read to satisfy their curiosity or to spark debate. As he always does, he's writing to point them to Jesus. Younger Christians and theologians, I have a, a topic, a question that you can discuss later with your families after the sermon this morning. Why do we obey God? Why do we do it? Why do we obey God? Why do we walk in obedience to the Father? That's something for you to talk about later. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus, even as it wades into the dark waters of future evil and future judgment. Because in the end, it shines the light of hope. In the end, it takes hearts which can't be restrained by threats and law, and it redeems them into hearts longing for God himself. And we're going to read of it in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 2, the whole chapter this morning. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. For he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. And to this end, he called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And so, Father, we pray once again for the power, the strength, the insight, 
the light of your Spirit to come into our hearts and our minds to grasp how it is that you are removing the strengths of fear and pride in our hearts and lives and turning us to the beauty of the Savior that our lives may be motivated simply by loving Him. We pray this in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen. You can be seated. Well, when I was in sixth grade, my Sunday school class started watching a 1972 produced multi-part video series called A Thief in the Night. We would sit in our seats and the curtains would be drawn and we would watch the TV as the next episode in the series would begin with a 1972-era praise band singing Larry Norman's song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. You may be familiar with that song. A song lamenting that Jesus had returned to rapture Christians away from the world and those who were left behind were now to suffer the great tribulation. And as the song would fade, we would watch the next installment in the story about Patty Jo Myers and her friends. Patty Jo was a young woman with a Marsha Brady haircut who believed herself to be a Christian because she would occasionally read the Bible and would attend church. And towards the beginning of the movie, she's at a park having a picnic with her husband and a few friends, and they're discussing the gospel. And it becomes clear that her husband is starting to become very inclined towards believing the good news. And I can't, I can't remember his name at all. I just remember that he had a handlebar mustache that would make Wyatt Earp cry. That's all I remember about him. But as the series progresses, Patty Jo dreams that the rapture takes place and she is left behind to suffer all of the terrible plagues of the Great Tribulation. And at the end of the first movie, it looks as though Patty is about ready to be killed by the forces of evil when suddenly she wakes from her dream, only to discover that the real rapture really is happening and her husband had already been taken. And so the first episode ends with her crying on her bed and the tussled sheets next to her showing where her now raptured husband had been sleeping And the words to, I wish we'd all been ready, are ramping up as the credits start rolling. And I left church that first morning absolutely terrified. I had never heard anything before in my life, either at any other church venue or camp, that even touched upon the subjects addressed in that movie. And I don't know about the other kids in my class, But over the next couple months of videos, I probably asked Jesus into my heart about a half a dozen times or more. And I would wake up every morning lying in my bed wondering if the next second was going to be the last and some mighty angel's trumpet was going to blow the roof off my house. Eschatology. Eschatology, it's a big theological word which means the study of last things, the study of the end times. And evangelicals have a long history of milking this subject for as many fear-driven books and movies and sermons as we can possibly create because fear is powerful, at least for a while. 
But a lot of what we consider to be the scariest parts of the Bible weren't written to scare. They were written to encourage. And the fact that we have often used them to promote fear says a lot more about us than it does about the God who's revealed them to us. And fear wasn't the weapon that Paul was using when he wrote this passage to the Thessalonian Christians. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Fear wasn't Paul's solution. Fear was the problem. And the problem the Thessalonians had, according to verse 2, was that they believed that Jesus' second coming had either already taken place or was so near they needed to be concerned about setting dates. Based on how the Greek text reads at the end of verse 2, scholars debate whether the Thessalonians believed that Jesus had already returned and they had somehow missed it, or if they believed that it was just going to be any second, any day now. And either way, the main problem seems to be that the Thessalonians had become obsessed with internet sites and pulp culture books and end times charts, all promising them that that their primary concern day and night was to be the timing of Jesus' return, a date. And this had caused them to become shaken and alarmed, as Paul says. They weren't encouraged. They didn't have hope. They had fear. And so Paul chooses to bring them some peace by reminding them of the things he'd already said before. He'd already taught them these things before, as verse 5 says. And he brings this peace by telling them the story of two messiahs. He begins the story by making something very clear for them in the first two verses. He reminds them that the coming return of Jesus, our being gathered to him, and the day of the Lord, are all the same event. They're just three different aspects of the same event, the coming, the return of the Lord Jesus, are being gathered to him, and the day of the Lord. They're all phrases that he uses here in the first few verses. And they're not three separate events. They're three aspects of the same event. The phrase, coming of our Lord Jesus, in verse 1, uses the Greek word parousia, which means the appearing. It focuses on Jesus as a royal dignitary, a king who is coming appearing in all of his royal glory to inherit the kingdom that is rightfully his. The picture is like that, for those of you who have seen it, I assume most of you have. The picture is like that of of Aragorn at the end of The Return of the King, Tolkien's last novel and the Lord of the Rings series. Because towards the end of the story, Aragorn does not become king. He's always been king. He's always had the rights of kingship, actually, throughout the story. Rather, at the end, he's proclaimed king. He is visibly crowned in front of everyone and he actually claims the inheritance to all that has been promised to him and all that has been actually his all along. The second phrase, our being gathered to him, that Paul uses here, focuses on the fact that we, his people, his royal bride, are the most important part of his very great inheritance. We will finally be wed to him in fullness, gathered from our scattered existence. Our scatteredness in terms of coming from every tribe, tongue, and nation, as Adam was talking about before, from every age of history, and our scatteredness in terms of our divided hearts. 
our scattered affections, our scattered loves, our many idols that scatter our attentions and pursuits. All of this is going to be melted down and it's going to be burned off, leaving hearts that only beat for him and desire him with no competitors. And the third phrase, the day of the Lord in verse 2, is something that Colin has already given attention to from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he preached that a few weeks ago. It's a very extensively used phrase from the Old Testament prophets. It's a major theme throughout the Bible. We find it throughout the Old Testament prophets. The phrase, the day of the Lord. And in every single case where it's being used, the context of the day of the Lord is God crushing his enemies, bringing judgment on his enemies, and rescuing and bringing liberation to God's chosen people. Every time it comes up. So when Paul references the day of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 5, he's referring to God's future judgment of all people, as Colin told us. And he means the same thing here in this passage. He's talking about the great day of future judgment. And so all three of these things, Christ's return and royal splendor, Christ's gathering to himself his church, his bride from every place and age, and Christ's judgment of his enemies are all part of the same event. What the church has confessed for all time as it's recorded in the Nicene Creed when we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And then Paul says, don't be alarmed, Thessalonians. Stop freaking out. You haven't missed anything. Because here's the deal. All of that isn't going to happen until the story of the two messiahs is complete. And then Paul gives a theological outline of this story. The story of two Christ figures, two messianic figures that we actually see mentioned throughout the Bible. And here's the catch. One of them is the true messiah and the other is a fake. And the fake has no interest in being creative or original. His only purpose, his only interest is impersonation, copying, looking as much like the real Messiah as possible. And Paul describes him using three titles throughout this passage. He calls him first the man of lawlessness and then the son of destruction, both of these in verse 3. He then simply calls him the lawless one in verse 8. And man of lawlessness and the lawless one basically mean the same thing. This fake Messiah, no matter what guise he uses, no matter what mask he wears, no matter what curtain he's hiding behind, will truly be a picture of complete evil. He will be the personification of sin. He's going to be the embodiment of everything that is contrary to God's holy law. Even though he probably will not look like it on the outside. At least for a while. The phrase, son of destruction, is a Hebrew idiom. And it's a way of speaking. In fact, Judas Iscariot is called exactly the same thing by Jesus in John chapter 17. And just as was true for Judas... Paul uses this title as a way of calling this figure a man destined for destruction. A man whose end is going to be characterized by destruction. 
In verse 4, Paul goes on to teach that this fake Messiah will seek fake worship. Just as the Messiah draws true worshipers to himself. In fact, this man of lawlessness is going to set himself up in full opposition. Not just to the true Christ, but to any other object of worship in the catalog. He's he's the picture of a satanic prima donna who not only requires that everyone worship him, but most likely truly believes he deserves it. He sounds like a Hollywood starlet and a Roman emperor squeezed into one person. As one modern commentator has said, the man of lawlessness will set himself up in the position of an adversary against anyone or anything that would claim people's religious devotion. And by being such a great adversary, his activity is also clearly linked with Satan, as Paul says in verse 9. In fact, Satan is said to be the agent behind this person's power, and the name Satan means adversary. This figure that Paul is writing about here is clearly the Antichrist. Which brings up an important question. Who is that supposed to be? Who are we supposed to understand the Antichrist to be from the Bible? Because here's the deal. Paul's not the only one to talk about the Antichrist. In fact, Jesus and the apostles of the New Testament, they're not the first ones to talk about the Antichrist either. This important figure has Old Testament background. In the book of Daniel, chapters 8 and 11, Daniel seems to tie the Antichrist to a ruler named Antiochus IV, who was a king of the Greek kingdom called the Seleucid Empire, and he reigned over Israel and Palestine about 150 years before Jesus' birth, about 150 B.C. And this Antiochus forced Greek customs and Greek worship upon the Jewish people. He entered the temple and sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the Jewish sacrificial altar, purely to desecrate it, purely as an insult. He outlawed circumcision, the sign of God's covenant. It would be like someone coming and outlawing baptism in the church. And and, and he's pictured for us as a prototype of the Antichrist by Daniel. Because here's the thing, when Jesus comes to speak about the Antichrist during his ministry, he doesn't think Antiochus IV fulfilled everything that we need to know about the Antichrist. And so Jesus refers not just to one Antichrist, he actually talks about many false Christs and many false prophets who will claim to be messiahs in the future in Matthew chapter 24. The Apostle John is going to speak of the spirit of the Antichrist in chapter 4 of his first letter. And here, the spirit of the Antichrist is seen in any place where people deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, that Jesus was fully human. And so for John, any group or church who does not proclaim the fullness of Jesus' divinity as God and the fullness of his humanity is said to be in league with the spirit of the Antichrist. And so we see that the theology of the Antichrist throughout the Bible, it's not just given in one passage. 
We're not just given one keyhole to kind of look through the door into which we, we can see the Antichrist. Instead, we're given a series of paintings to walk by and a gallery, each of them giving us a slightly different picture, another facet, another piece of the puzzle or another shadow that is going to be cast by the ultimate figure. And this shouldn't be surprising for us because this is how God has brought so many of his other truths to us in the scriptures, including what the Bible has to say about the true Christ. And so we see pictures of the true Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, throughout the Old Testament. Pictures of his birth and his origin and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. All these figures in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus, but who never really fulfill the promises of being the Messiah. Men like Joseph and men like David Men like Moses, who weren't the Messiah, that gave us pictures of who the Messiah would be. In the same way, we're given pictures of this end times Antichrist figure throughout the Bible. Like Pharaoh in Egypt. Like Judas Iscariot. Like some of the Old Testament rebellious, wicked Jewish kings. Like Ahab and Jezebel. None of these people actually being the Antichrist themselves in fullness, but giving us snapshots and pictures of what he'll look like. But Paul here in 2 Thessalonians, and then John in the book of Revelation, which we're not going to look at, they both give us a picture of where all these Antichrist pictures and shadows are going. They're headed to some kind of end times political, religious ruler that's going to arise in the midst of a full-time, full-scale human rebellion against God, as verse 3 says. And then Paul says something really interesting in verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And as you would probably guess, there's been about a million different ways to interpret this throughout history. And we don't have time by any means to even investigate a few of them. So I'm just going to give you the view that I think is best. It was not a view I invented or came up with, I assure you. But for all of you conspiracy theorists out there, I'm about ready to make your day. This is probably the only time, this is probably the only context where you're ever going to hear me say this, but you're partially right to believe in conspiracies. Because I think Paul is saying that there is a conspiracy of sorts, not a human conspiracy, not a conspiracy among all our media moguls, not some secret smoke-filled room with all the powerful figures in the world, not a conspiracy at the UN or on Wall Street, but a conspiracy between Satan and his demons. I think Paul is saying that there is some kind of mysterious ploy unknown to us in its details where Satan's planning to bring about some sort of a worldwide open rebellion against God and his son with a chosen false Messiah leading it. And it's a plan that reaches all the way back to the Garden of Eden, just like God's plan for redeeming us through his promised Savior begins in the Garden too. It's that old. Which is why we get pictures of Antichrist going back so far too. 
And we even get a picture of this worldwide rebellion like nowhere else in Genesis chapter 6, which Jeff read for us earlier a minute ago. If you want a picture of this great rebellion that he would like to bring about against God, a picture with a mystery of lawlessness that Satan is cooking up is going to go, Genesis 6 and the wholesale evil displayed there right before the flood is a great picture where the thoughts and the intentions and the actions of man's hearts are given over completely to wickedness and evil. And so the question is, what has kept Satan from reaching his goal? Well, according to Paul, it's the restrainer. And again, there's a million views out there. There always has been on who the restrainer is. Some have said it's human government. Some have said it's the clear witness of the church, the preaching of the gospel. Some have said directly it's, it's the Holy Spirit. But in my view, no matter which of those or many other views you take, if you believe in a sovereign God who's in control of all things, as Adam has said for us this morning, you have to ultimately believe that whatever specifically the restrainer is, God's behind it, restraining the devil's plan until the devil's plan is in agreement with God's greater plan. So no matter which specific restrainer Paul had in mind, and no one knows, I think it comes down in any case to what Christians have believed for centuries about common grace. Common grace. Common grace is all of the good things, all of the blessings God has simply cast like a blanket over the whole human race. Common grace is the ability of all people, Christian or not, to enjoy the mountains. It's lush green fields that we can all run barefoot through. It's white sandy beaches layered against clear blue water that we can all enjoy regardless of our relationship to Jesus. It's a night in the country with no city lights to dim your drinking in of the stars so close that you could touch them. You enjoy common grace all the time when you listen to great music and when you take in a night at an art museum and gaze at beautiful paintings or when you enjoy delicious food, all made by people who may or may not love the Lord Jesus. But, and get this because I think this is closer to Paul's point here, common grace is also secular government's who still punish murderers and rapists and thieves. Common grace is governments who will stop terrorists instead of being terrorists. Common grace is nonprofit organizations who still help the homeless and the poor and the downtrodden and the sick, even if these organizations aren't doing it in the name of Jesus. Because the Bible teaches that all of these things, like the rains from heaven, fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous. There are constant falling, showering, dripping down on us like a rainforest, and they are graces from God. They are graces from God every bit as much as His special grace, which comes to hard hearts to renew them and forgive them and to make them like Jesus. Every good and perfect gift comes down from our Father of lights, James says in chapter 1 of his letter. But you know what else common grace is? 
conscience that won't allow a person to cross certain lines. The Bible teaches in many places, especially Romans 1 and 2, that we all come into this world understanding the difference between right and wrong. Feeling guilty when sin is committed against this God that we also believe exists when we come into this world. And this conscience, especially when it's reinforced by family and peer pressure and culture, often keeps good citizens behaving like good citizens. This is common grace too. Often given by God and made available to human societies all over the place. And I think Paul is saying here that at some point, God's going to remove this restraining common grace and leave us to our naked, wanton depravity. That if he were to remove his common grace, it would terrify us to see what we'd become. That he's going to remove his common restraining grace. He's going to let families fall apart completely and governments become impotent in restraining evil and people's consciences become so seared that feeling guilt isn't even going to show up on their radar screen of their soul anymore. This is Genesis 6. And what happened when God removed his gracious restraint then? The most terrible judgment yet experienced by the human race in the flood. And I think it's only going to be eclipsed by the judgment to come. Eventually, the story of the two messiahs comes to an end. And the real messiah is going to appear from heaven. And he is going to openly judge and destroy the lying serpent dwelling in the false Christ, as verse 8 says. And Paul says in verse 15... Stand firm in this knowledge. Stand firm in what you've been taught. Not led astray by crazy theories and teachings. These things have to happen before the day of the Lord comes. But along with standing firm in Paul's teaching here, there's also something else for us to consider, I think. The Lord Jesus came the first time so that we could live here and now not as those under the restraint of common grace, as though that's the best we can have, He came to give us redemption. He came to offer us something better than simply a restraining power. He came to offer us something better than simply chains that will keep us from going as far as we'd like to go. The Puritan Jonathan Edwards in 1765, he wrote a treatise entitled The Nature of True Virtue. And in this essay, Edwards is asking this question... What does true holiness look like? What motivates it? And he goes on to say that for a lot of us, Christians included, we seek to live righteously primarily out of fear and pride. Fear and pride. We do extra work around the house because we're promised, we promised our spouse that we would, and now we're afraid of being caught having failed. We obey our parents because we're afraid of what they're going to do if we don't obey them. We don't cheat on our taxes because we're afraid of being caught by the IRS. We come and worship our church because our pride whispers to us that others will begin to think poorly of us or question our commitment if we don't come. 
we read our Bibles or pray or attend Bible studies because we're afraid of the community and our pride is fed when we get to tell others how much we know about the Bible. We get to be the star of the show. And the list could go on. But in all of this, Edward's point is this. Edward's point is this. When we seek to live out holiness like this, we're not living by the Spirit who lives inside of us. We're living under the power of restraint. Fear of government. Fear of judgmental glances. Fear of a guilty conscience. The pride of applause. The pride of being envied. We're engaging in good behaviors for all the same reasons that an unbelieving world would engage in good behaviors. And Edwards simply says, you've got so much better offered to you than that. I heard recently a news program telling the story of a young man in his 30s. He's continuing to serve out his 57 years to life sentence in San Quentin State Prison in San Francisco. The other inmates call him Wall Street. They call him Wall Street because this man named Chris Carroll, that's his real name, learned how to read after becoming a prisoner, and he now spends 18 hours a day learning everything he can learn about the stock market. He now gives winning stock market advice, lessons on how to budget your money and save and invest. He teaches classes about these things to inmates who are about ready to leave the prison system, and even to a lot of the guards. He posts his predictions every day on a wall, which is checked regularly by everyone working there so they can update their portfolios when they get home. And here's a sad thing. Wall Street, Chris Carroll, he may never be able to enjoy his knowledge because he's locked up and he may stay locked up, until he's very, very old, or maybe even until his death. He lives every day restrained, unable to enjoy the gifts that he's clearly been given. And this morning's passage calls us from living so restrained by fear and pride. It calls us to stop living by fear and pride, things that God uses in His common grace to restrain the unbelieving world, and instead to seek after a deeper fellowship with Jesus, a deeper knowledge of His presence, a more obedient walk to our calling, simply out of the joy and the love of who He is, loving Him for His beauty. Edwards would say, that non-believers find God useful, serving Him because of what you're going to get, serving Him because of the rewards, serving Him out of fear from His judgment. Unbelievers find God useful, but believers should find Him beautiful. Verse 13 in our passage. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He chose us just like Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, just like God chose Noah. So He has chosen us 
And not because we were lovely, not because we proved that we were easier to restrain than the sinner next to us. He chose us simply because, as the verse says, He loved us. That's it. He loved us. There's no other reason. There's no other motivation given. And so we can now be set free to unrestrainedly love Him and others simply because there's nothing more beautiful than a Savior who owes us nothing, giving us everything from Himself. We're set free to live holy lives simply because we love Him for who He is. No reason external to that. We love Him for Him. That is the heart of the redeemed. We've been set free to love him unrestrained, but redeemed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray and we ask, by your grace and your mercy, you would make us your children, your sons, your daughters, the sort of people who love you for who you are, the sort of people who do not walk in obedience to what you've said, out of fear, out of pride. These things you use for lots of different ends, for your great plans for our world, our fear and our pride. By your grace, you even use them to restrain further evil because you are so kind and good. But you have given so much better to us. You've given us the love of the Savior. You've given us your love. And you've enabled us through his coming, through his giving of himself, his presence among us and with us to know a joy of his presence, a joy of his salvation and his love, to bask in the beauty of who he is and to live out of that treasure that you've given us. And so would you actually work that out in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives? we would live out of love just as you saved us out of love. May this be true for us this week. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the Spirit. Amen.